sound of one of the best stouts in the world. Yeah. So that's another special release for this month is Stout Month at Golden City Brewery. So go check them out at Golden City Brew on... Uh, do you want me to pour that for you? Do you remember how to pour? Obviously not. No. <laughs> not even a little. Look at how much head's on that. All of it. All of the beer I don't know how to head. pour from cans. <laughs> well... I like to drink from cans. You should have your glass at not quite a 45 degree angle. Somebody told me the perfect angle. I don't remember the actual thing anyways then it doesn't quite foam out as much and pour nice and slow Usually instead of just you know bottles. dumping it horribly under anyways uh welcome to a drink to the past the only podcast where i let chris pour his own beer and then i regret it because <laughs> this is the only podcast that the two of us are on if it was a bottle that would it would be fine would it yeah a little better maybe <laughs> i mean i would get like this much head as opposed to mm-hmm. Most of the beer being head. Right. Anyways, this one is Eyes Wide Shut, which is uh, Imperial Milk Stout from Golden City Brewery. Uh, I didn't know that was a thing, but then I got this, and uh, I've already had it. I had one in the tap room, and I got this four-pack, and I've Mm. had one at home. I'm going to give this fucking thing a 17. Imperial and milk, 17. Yeah, I agree. It's just tasting good. it for the first time that's that is a good stout yeah and uh yeah so i am sean michael patrick thompson as always and this is chris he's drinking so he can't tell you his funny middle name Audet. nope that was it that was, it was it. exactly the one <laughs> yeah so um anyways yeah uh so i guess news and booze is our first segment anyways and we've already got into the booze except for sean doing something stupid today is brought to you by peyton because peyton didn't show up so i have to drink his chocolate milk which is made out of booze because i was going to give peyton boozy chocolate milk and see if he noticed and he was totally gonna notice like first sip he'd be like why does this taste like rum and coffee <laughs> a good drink. Yeah. Anyways, Peyton was gonna join us, but he didn't get around to. But I had already made his cocktail, so I'm gonna I'm gonna drink this adult chocolate milk. Mm. Adult ju- juvenile. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Mostly tastes like chocolateish milk with a hint of coffee, because that's from the Kahlua there. It's got uh, the recipe I found said uh, chocolate milk, cream, vodka. And Kahlua. So I did all of those things except for instead of cream, I put in Irish cream because everything is better with more booze. Probably. So, and I don't just keep cream on hand, but I do keep Irish cream on hand because Bailey's is not particularly expensive and it goes in lots of weird cocktails. I feel like Irish cream would keep better than regular cream anyway. Yeah. Probably. I don't have a lot of either lying around. I mean, I just keep my Baileys on the shelf with the rest of my liquors, then it's fine, you know, instead of cream going bad in the fridge after two weeks. Yeah. So. So, yes, Baileys lasts much better. <laughs> I'll drink to that. Mm. This is pretty good, though. It, I mean, it's simple, but, like, what do you want from it? It's fucking chocolate milk. That's one of the best things about chocolate milk is it's so fucking simple. It's chocolate, it's chocolate. and milk. What the fuck do you want? I mean, you could have, like, Nesquik or something, which is, like, chocolate milk, but kind of inferior. Yeah, somehow. It's like, how still, did you, still how did you okay. that up? Right? I mean, it's kind of hard to... It's I mean, like, it's better it's than a, Yoohoo. Did, have you ever had Yoohoo? Yeah. I have not had Yoohoo. It's, it's fucking awful. Wow. It's like, how did you fuck up chocolate? 
stuff. Because it's not even milk. It's chocolate drink. Which I'm not sure what that means, but it tastes like chocolate and, like, rusty ball sack. Awful. Yeah. Like, how does your ball sack even rust? Why is it metal? Well, on the bright side, it probably keeps. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So let's get into the news and booze. Um, I'm going to give this thing uh, a good 12. It's, yeah. it's, it's fine. It's, it's pretty good. It's mostly just chocolate milk, though. Can't go wrong with chocolate milk. Yeah, pretty much. All right, today is the 34th anniversary of the original release of The Legend of Zelda. Happy birthday, Zelda and Link. And I'm sure they'll come up later in the podcast so we can move on. Uh, next thing Absolutely. on the news and booze is Hideo Kojima has tweeted out, Coming 2020, which is the caption he put on this trailer, uh, which is... It all uses content from Death Stranding in the trailer, and it looks like almost exactly like the 1917 trailer with the guy running across the field and shit blowing up, and there's a plane that blows up, and then it like zooms out through the year, like in the 1917 trailer, it zooms out, and then it's like, ooh, it's 1917, and but in this, it's 2020, obviously. So it's like very clearly alluding to that movie for some reason. Um... So something Death Stranding related is probably coming in 2020, and now rumors are like, well, mostly speculation is kind of starting to creep around of, is it getting a PC release? Is it getting DLC? I think a PC release is fairly likely since it was a timed PS4 exclusive. So as soon as that PS4 exclusivity is up, I wouldn't be surprised to see it make its way to PC. Maybe Xbox? I don't know. I mean, if it comes out for PC, then I could pick it up and not ever have to think about picking up a PS4. So, uh... Yeah. There's that. Yeah. Major selling point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Unclear if it means anything at all, though. Courtney Campbell... Had, uh, t- in tabletop news, Courtney Campbell has started up a Kickstarter for Artifice's Deceptions and Dilemmas which is a list of things in dungeon rooms and the how-to-preserve agency uh, while uh, processing those things. So if you're a DM, you describe them in a way that, you know, gives the players options as to what to do as opposed to, you know, rolling... I roll a search check. Okay. (laughs) All right, you don't find anything. And then, you know, getting nailed by a trap. Neat. Yeah. I just realized that people, like, listening to our podcast for the first time are going to be like, they rated that beer at 17? What the fuck? So why don't you why don't you describe the rating scale? Then? Yeah, just in case you are new to the podcast, because maybe we've got some new subscribers on iTunes. Hint, hint. Mm-hmm. Click that subscribe button and ring the bell for notifications and click the card in the upper right-hand corner of the earth. Yes. I have to drink for that. Yeah. That, that old-ass Lego magazine reference there. I thought it was a journey to the upper right-hand corner of the Earth. It was. That was an old Lego magazine reference. Really? It, that Yeah. <laughs> That's what that movie was based on. Like, not entirely. That's where I stole the title. Now that you mention it, and I now remember that we also made a movie titled That in high school, which... I'm not sure if they copyrighted the name Journey to the Upper Right-Hand Corner of the Earth, but that was, uh, yeah, there was, there was a, 
in the old Lego magazine, there was the comics of, uh, like, the Lego Maniac and some of the characters from all the old Lego sets before Lego just was big enough to be like, hey, you're a known property. We're making Legos of that now. And anybody in their right mind is like, yes, Lego, give me a fuckload of money, please. Thank you. <laughs> so now Legos is like, okay, yeah, we have licensed Indiana Jones and all that. But uh, yeah, this was actually before they licensed Indiana Jones. They had this knockoff Indiana Jones guy called Johnny Thunder who would come up in the Lego comics occasionally. And it was fucking hilarious. And th th there was one where he's just uh, like, I, I think the Lego maniac runs into him or somebody runs into him and they're like, hey, you're Johnny Thunder. And he's like, yeah, I am. Which movie do you recognize me from? Is it Dino Cop 5, Brontosaurus with a badge or Journey to the Upper Right Hand Corner of the Earth? <laughs> so that's the origin of that. That's the origin. I never knew. Yeah. I was even in that movie. Yeah. I died several times. <laughs> yes, you did. You're... You played the part of Guy Who Dies, Guy Who Dies number two, Guy Who Dies number three, and General The Guy Who Dies. Yeah. I believe were your character names. I died a lot. Yes. Your poor splintered heart. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, so yeah, that uh, Courtney Campbell has a Kickstarter up now, so go check that out. And also, while you're on Kickstarter, uh, NorCal Mythos uh, has got their Mission Deck Kickstarter live. They were with us a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we got a chance to talk to them. So if you're wondering what are, kick, uh, what are uh, Mission Decks all about, then you can check out our podcast on that, uh, or you can head over to their Kickstarter page, and it will also explain it. And uh, so I guess just if you don't want to read, then listen to our other episode of the podcast. I'm pretty sure we had a podcast where we talked to them. Just a few podcasts ago. Yeah. Go back in the podcast history. It, it'll be clearly labeled. Yes. It's, As opposed to every other podcast label. Yeah, like, most of them are just weird, stupid titles that I make up, but, like, if we have a guest to plug something, then I'll put something in the title about plugging them. So, uh, yeah, I think the, the name is probably... Mission Dex is probably the name of the episode or something like that. So, so go check that out. I... I should know the name of my own podcast episodes, but I, I really don't. I don't know. I can't even remember the name of the day. Drink. <laughs> A new Famitsu feature by Masahiro Sakurai states that after DLC Pass 2 is finished, Super Smash Bros. Ultimate will finally be complete. Furthermore, there is no planning commenced for any future games from Sakurai, which means we don't have any plans beyond this Super Smash Brothers for any more Super Smash Brothers. Oh, well, I mean, they except didn't... for, I mean, it could happen. It like people are like, oh my god, this means this is gonna be the last Smash it'll game. It'll probably like, happen. It might it's be the last Smash game. Probably gonna. I think Sakurai is hoping it's going to be the last Smash he'll be involved with. Yeah. I mean, I, he didn't call it Super Smash Brothers Penultimate. Right. Where's the where's the where's the fucking rim shot? I'll I'll drink to that. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I'm like it's too early to call it really if it's the last one. I don't think it'll be the last one. If it's Sakurai's last one, eh, maybe. Because I could see Sakurai after being like 10 years on Super Smash Brothers and fucking nothing else. Maybe wanting to direct a new game or something. 
you know, maybe get him back on Kirby or something. That'd be yeah. great. Because, I mean, he directed... I'm trying to think of which... He's a creator of Kirby. I'm trying to remember exactly which games were him directly involved in. Because he hasn't been as directly involved lately. Uh, not to say that Kirby has been terrible without him, but I feel like it's not... None of them lately have lived up to, like, the old, good old days. Like Kirby's Epic Yarn, the game where you cannot die. Yeah, that one. That's the good old days. <laughs> or something. Um, yeah, um, like, um... Kirby's Dreamland, Kirby's Kirby's Crystal Chronicles. Chronicles. Crystal Chronicles. You're an idiot. <laughs> Although now that you mention it, I want to see that. I want a Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles spin-off starring Kirby. Kirby. Why don't we? Kirby, have this? Kirby and Kirby. Yes. Four Kirby's and you're collecting treasure to buff up your stats and they already made that and it was called Clash Royale. <laughs> Except there's no story. Oh. It's just like beat 'em up kind of it, it's actually kind of like almost Castle Crashers but Kirby. So it's like, it kind of works. I'd enjoy that. Yeah. Uh, that's on Switchy Shop now, I believe, and uh, 3DS as well. Doesn't have anything on Final Fantasy, the Crystal Shards. No. <laughs> what were you talking about? <laughs> Superstar, that's the thing I was trying to think of. Anyways, let's move on to our next move news topic. Is uh, movie news. Bum, bum, that's our theme song for movie news, apparently. That's our theme song for movie news? I mean, for every time we have movie news, which will be not very much. But the Sonic the Hedgehog movie is a video game movie and therefore relatable to our content. And uh, it is yeah, currently number one movie in the world. Current box office totals are sitting at $128 million after a week in theaters. Holy That's fuck. pretty good. Uh... Its opening weekend came in at $58 million, which is uh, just a little bit ahead of Detective Pikachu, so now this is officially the fastest-selling video game movie of all time. I, so I, Emphasis on fastest, because it's Sonic. <laughs> we have to drink. When you're faster than light, you can only live in the darkness. Is that so? I'm just wondering if it's selling this big because the Sonic fandom is insane, or if it's because the history behind this movie is insane, or if the movie actually ended up being good? I, I don't know. I saw it. Um, I liked it. It is the funniest movie I've seen in a long fucking time. Wow. It's, like, pretty good, actually. That is high praise. Yeah. Uh, it's... I feel like most people don't feel like it about that. Most people that I'm seeing reviewing it and stuff are like, yeah, it was fine. It was a good fun thing but for me i really just like that it's a comedy that's fun for the sake of being a fun comedy you know it's like comedies these days i feel like have to muddle everything up with like oh we have to have a deep story and relatable characters and i'm like no that is what dramas are for dramas and comedies can have elements of the other within them but if you try to mix them too much, I feel like it brings down both elements. And also, a lot of the modern comedies can just be 
their jokes don't land because they're just sitting people around <laughs> and having them talk. Yeah. That's it? Yeah. There's Admittedly, I'm also getting on uh, some of the Sonic movie for like a lot of good fart jokes and stuff. So that that's pretty good. So you have to be a little bit juvenile in your sense of humor to appreciate this. So even critics saying it was fine to a video game movie—that's that's that's, that's, that's so praise. much yeah further uh, than I you believe think it's a sitting video game movie at sixty-nine uh, or something percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which for a video game movie is fucking 69. amazing. Aha, sixty-nine. <laughs> uh, but I will say it is one of the truest uh, movies to uh, video game development in that the entire staff got laid off as soon as it was done. Mm -hmm. Also, another interesting Sonic movie tidbit, according to Neil McDonough, or McDonough? McDonough? I'm not really sure how McDonough to pronounce it. Yeah, something like I, that. I don't know. don't know how to pronounce that. Sorry for butchering your name, Mr. Person. Uh, anyways, he was one of the characters in the movie. Uh, was actually pretty funny. He's like this kind of... Uh, like Jim Carrey's butler almost like Robotnik's butler and so he's playing a part Jim Carrey for almost all of his shots and and he's just kind of this random character but he works surprisingly well for some reason anyways this guy says that there are quote rumblings that The Rock will be in Sonic 2 according to him The Rock is in part 2 of everything <laughs> So, I have no idea if that was a joke or not. Based on that, because he's like, The Rock is in part two of everything, by the way. And I was like, wait a minute, is this, are you trolling us? Just everything about this is incredible, in the literal sense of the word. Yeah. As in, it's not credible. Yes. <laughs> I'm... I'm super hyped if The Rock is going to be in Sonic 2. I'm just like, I don't know what the fuck you could do, but it will be amazing. <laughs> All right. Uh, so this week we had an Animal Crossing Direct announced, shown, and then bitched at by fans. And then Nintendo actually was like, okay, fans, we'll give you what you want. Because they bitched too much. Because apparently the Animal Crossing community is that bitchy. Anyway, so the Animal Crossing Direct, first of all, did not feature Breath of the Wild 2, so a lot of fans were disappointed from that, even though there was no fucking reason to expect it to do so. There was also, like, a streamer that was, like, just watching it to see if there was a Smash character reveal. I'm like, you're a fucking moron. Nope. <laughs> Anyways. I, um, I ain't got nothing to say to that. So fans were outraged briefly that cloud saves could only be retrieved one time ever if your Switch was lost or stolen or broken or something. Uh, you could retrieve your cloud save data one time, and, and that was it. Everybody gets one. So why the Why is there a limit? I don't know. But anyways, basically, people complained about this so much that, like, in a press statement earlier today, Nintendo came out and was like, okay, guys, we're going to make it so you can just back it up with cloud saves with Nintendo Switch Online, like every other fucking game on Nintendo Switch Online. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, that's all right, I guess. Like, why did you do this? I mean, it's... 
it's it's a weird it's re- it feels ridiculous both ways. Yeah, it's like uh, I'm like yeah. I'm not defending Nintendo on this, but I'm like I'm also not planning on trashing two switches in a row, right? So it's like by the time you break your second switch, won't you probably be done with Animal Crossing? Probably. I right. mean, I mean, like, unless I you're the kind that... of grandma that plays five thousand hours of Animal Crossing. There is a story I'm, about I'm not that, that kind of grandma. Anywho. I'm a different kind of grandma. You are a very different kind of grandma. Um, a Twitter leak, which I could not verify the source of, but basically this thing has been going around. Uh, I saw the picture, but I couldn't see, I couldn't tell what Twitter account it originated from. Anyways, it's just like a printout of the box art, like on a sheet of paper in some guy's hand for Final Fantasy VII Remake, and it says it will take up 100 gigabytes of your PlayStation 4 hard drive, which is possible and fairly plausible since Square Enix has already told us it's going to come out on two Blu-ray discs. So, just sounds big, if true. Big, if true. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, uh, that that's a thing. Um, I'm like... Is is this important? Why why is everybody shocked by this? Final Fantasy VII was one of the biggest games ever. Its remake is going to be even bigger. It's higher fidelity. People yeah. won't look like a bunch of cardboard boxes stapled together. Uh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, I don't only know. took them. People are freaking out about this a little bit, and I'm like, dude, you got a fucking terabyte. Suck it up. Uh, get a, you know external hard drive if you're that worried about it they they're not yeah they're not that expensive yeah and final fantasy 7 remake will also recently this was announced uh have dlc summons which is kind of weird it's like you can buy extra summon materia as dlc god damn uh, it i'm like this is stupid but it's easy enough to ignore but just so the, long as the they don't actively okay, take stuff out. Yeah, so the one okay thing about this is that these ones that they've announced are Chocobo Chick, Carbuncle, and Cactuar, which are all originally summons from other Final Fantasy games. But so, not from FF7. Yeah, they were not in the original Final Fantasy So VII, I'm so, fine with it being DLC because, you know, the studio's yeah. got to recoup its costs somehow. Yeah. So I'm like... Kind of take it or leave it. I don't actually care. I'm just going to play the base game. I very rarely buy DLC anyways for anything. But Final Fantasy VII, because it's the Final Fantasy VII remake, it will make just a shitload of money anyway. Yeah. DLC or no DLC. Mm-hmm. All right. And that was the news and booze. That was a good news and booze. Yeah. Feel feel like we were more rapid fire on that than usual. A little bit. Yeah. What Our topics were kind of like... Yeah, here's our opinion, and now we're done. Yeah. So, I'll drink to that. Are we on ADD medication? Not that I know of. I mean, I mean do I, they prescribe alcohol for ADD? Not, I'm pretty sure alcohol does the opposite of I what I might want. be a doctor. I'm going to prescribe you alcohol for your ADD. Okay. Drink that alcohol. So, I, I just got to say, I'm having kind of a paradoxical effect here. Are you? Yeah. Hmm. Sucks for you. You're not a very good doctor. I said I was a maybe doctor. You said you were a maybe. What is a maybe doctor? 
Maybe a doctor, maybe I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I'm starting to think you're not a doctor at all. <laughs> That's possible with a maybe doctor. You never know. That's the fun. All right. So our video game topic for this week is the top 10 influential games of all time. Or really, we're just going to talk about like what some of them are. And like if we don't get to 10, but we've talked about most of the big ones, then fuck it. Yeah. You know, depend. It, it, we're going to talk about this until we're bored, regardless of whatever number. But pretend it's a top 10. Pretend it's a top 10. Yeah. Uh. So... Chris, what is the not the most influential, but a pretty influential game that would rank maybe 10th if we were doing a set 10? I, I'd rank it higher than 10, but it's got to go somewhere. Undertale. Undertale. Which go, has gone in every list I've Undertale starts with the same first five letters as underwear. You are correct. And also it's the same length of word. Yes. In letters and syllables. I bet... I think I've... I think I... The game speaks for itself. Does it? I don't know. I can't really go into detail. I mean, it depends on people who, you know, like, have played it. Yeah. I mean, it must be fairly influential to be like, hey, look, Sans has a me costume in Spooper Smash Brothers. Yeah. That's the first one that I bought. Because Peyton was like, hey, you should buy that. And I was like, okay. So now you can play Sans on my Super Smash Brothers. Cool. But you have to figure out how to play Me Gunner. I have no idea. I've never played Me Gunner. I've never played any of the Mii's. I usually, yeah, I'm usually the one who would play, you know, any character but the Mii's. Hmm. Mii's are kind of weird. Yeah. I'm like... Even if they're not a bad character, it's like they're just lamer than everybody else. Yeah. Like, unless they've got a cool costume, then maybe. I thought about buying the Cuphead costume, too. That would be kind of cool. Cuphead's... Yeah, that would be pretty cool. Yeah. That that would actually be totally appropriate for the Mean Gunner, too. Cuphead, I feel like, is a very influential game as well, if we're going to stick at least on indie games of influence. Because uh, Cuphead is one of the largest mainstream... Uh, indie game breakouts of all time. It's like it's huge for an indie. It's pretty cool. I really like Cuphead. I'm not. I don't know that I would put it on the li same list as you, but I, I've really enjoyed it. I mm -hmm. really enjoy the swing music. Yeah, doesn't have it's to be awesome. on the list. I was just thinking, as long as we were on the topic of Cuphead. Yeah, it's a fairly influential game. Honorable mention at the very least. Yeah. Uh, so what makes Undertale all that influential? Uh, what did it influence in our gaming community? The way video game stories can be told. Huh. Neat. Or the idea of meaningful choice behind a game. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, on Fi Fire Emblem Three Houses, mm -hmm. how you're always complaining about how the dialogue options usually don't do anything different. Yeah, except for one time, but you have to do something special to make that one time changeable. Yeah. So that's v common in the video game industry in a lot of ways, and it's because it takes a lot of development effort to uh, go in and make the kinds of changes that allow those things mm -hmm. to happen. Yeah, I always thought that behind the scenes that would have to be incredibly complex, even to do things like 
uh, Knights of the Old Republic, where it's like you've got dialogue options and every character has to have a response to every option that you have. Uh, you know, that must be a crap load of work on the writers, on the uh, storyboard people, and then they have to... And for the most part, you're still walking through the same story, though. Yeah, and so it's, it's always... It's like you change some dialogue options here and there, and you gain dark side points for killing some dude who locked himself in a locker. And dark side points are just kind of... They're just lame. Mm-hmm. Mechanics like that are just a lame right. way of representing morality in a game. Mm-hmm. I feel like they were okay at the time in like that and Fable, but like after that, it was like okay, Knights of the Old Republic and Fable did that. Yeah, and Fable, it was you should if you had to choose between divorcing your wife and killing her, it was a better option morally to kill her. Yeah, not sure so, how that works. So. You heard it here first. It's better to kill your wife than divorce her. Mm-hmm. Don't actually do that, or I'll yeah. kill you. My wife in Fable divorced me, which was like really awkward because it was like I I got through that segment where you're like stuck in jail for like three years or something, and I finally got out, and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna go see my wife, see how she's doing, and she's like, you left me, bye, and she like the little ring above her head goes away and she goes inside our house and then I'm like, wait, hold on. Can I talk about this? This is weird. And I'm like trying to open the door to my own house and I can't open it because it like gave her the house in the split. And I was like, oh, fuck that. And I busted down my own door. I stabbed her where she stood. (laughs) I came back out and I bought my house again. I'm like, you're not taking my fucking house. You can divorce me. I don't care. But you gotta take my fucking house. Home is where your rump is. It's like a Greek tragedy, right? <laughs> but my point is that Undertale is, at least in terms of those moral choices and having your choices actually mean things, is not like those games. In that when you make those choices, they tend to come back in weird ways. And when you go out and the moral choice system in the game doesn't have anything like points attached to it, it just kind of watches how you play the game. Earlier, I went off on a tangent about our rating system, and then I don't think I ever actually described it. I'm not going to describe it now, because by this point, it's like far too late. <laughs> it's a hilarious. little too late. Yeah. Uh, but you were mentioning, uh, I want to say last week, about you were talking about Chrono Trigger's uh, court scene. Yeah. Imagine if the entire game was that, but it was giving you continuous feedback. Right. That would be cool. So it's one of those things that's one of those reasons I wanted to play Undertale. But every time I look at buying Undertale, I'm like, there's always another game that comes up or oops, I'm out of money or something like last time I was looking at it and I was like, ooh, it's on sale. Maybe I'll get it. Celeste. Oh, fuck. How did that happen? But Celeste was really good. I'm going to go back to that maybe as soon as I'm done with Blasphemous. I'm on the last boss now in Blasphemous. Blasphemous looks cool as hell. Yeah. Um, Dark Souls, I think, is worthy of an honorable mention, at least, for influence. Because I think it, uh, the series really kind of brought this whole kind of idea to the forefront of gaming that games could be hard and, like, challenge you in a different way. You know? Because, like, the big thing about Dark Souls is it's so, so hard, but it's like... 
it's not really all that much harder than like Celeste and or it's, Blasphemous it's or Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze. Yeah, it's like you die a lot, sure, but that's just kind of part of how you learn the game and get better at playing it. Death is the greatest teacher. But yeah, I, I didn't think Dark Souls 3 was any harder than Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze. Wow. I, I feel like I died about the same amount in both of those games, and then I got back up and I continued doing it. I feel like I died a whole lot more in Celeste. But but it's it's a little different in Celeste, because it's all platforming and not combat. Yeah. But it's, like, it's that same kind of thing. I feel like Celeste is harder in a lot of ways, especially mm. in the level where the damaging things move around mm. the hotel. Yeah. That level was a bitch. It was, but that was a it was a pretty cool I liked the design of that level actually. It was just a lot of fun. Even if it was a pain in the ass sometimes. So like the fade in soundtrack. That was mm. cool. Yeah. Um Anywho, let's go for a real big hard hitting one then. Um The Legend of Zelda. Damn, you beat you. You took mine. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the thirty fourth anniversary and such. We gotta mention it on the podcast because I do every week because I fucking. But it's worth noting everything else about the game aside, which I'm sure Sean's gonna get into detail about. The game introduced saves. It introduced saving. Yeah. If you couldn't save your game, imagine where gaming would be right now. Nowhere. That's where. Yeah. Like, people wouldn't probably hardly care. Nothing but a fad, a curiosity. Yeah. But suddenly you introduce saves, and it's like, oh, you can make the adventures much more big, much more dramatic, much more meaningful. You know? Uh, so saves is, is definitely... I don't, I don't know. It's one of the biggest things that the original Legend of Zelda brings to the table. Also... I think the original Legend of Zelda perfected the open world formula 30 years before anybody else really even started paying attention to it much. And then it took them... When was the original Zelda released? 34 years ago today. 34 years ago today? Yeah. And then it took them, uh, let's see, 31 years to uh, rediscover the formula? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that was that was a little... It's a, I, I think we could bring up some other Zelda games, too, but uh, definitely this one, I think, is... I actually think I wrote a article on Two Guys Playing Zelda about how this one was the most influential game of all time, uh, so go check that out. And while you're there, you can check out TwoGuysPlayingZelda.com. What a great place. Uh, shameless plug. But... Um, yeah, I, I got some interesting comments on that, and uh, the only one that really argued with me was, like, Adventure did most of the things that Zelda did first, and I think some of that is true, because it was an open-world game. Is that the one where you're, like... You're a like, fucking square, you're, and you're running from ducks that are called dragons, but they look like fucking ducks. And you try and find, like, a, I think there's, like, a key in one part of the world... And a door in another part of the world. I would disagree with that, just because the Atari... It didn't have any of the things that made it feel like an open world. Yeah. Because it, it was technically open, but the world was all 
structured within corridors. So it was more like a Metroid or a Castlevania style where it's like open, but it's not like an open world. You know, it didn't feel like a congruent world. It felt like one big level in Zelda, right? Like the whole world was probably slightly larger than a Zelda dungeon from Zelda 1. But it was still on the Atari. Yeah. So. And it didn't have combat. It had some exploration. Uh, so I think... And it had ducks. Yeah. And the graphics were like crap. <laughs> like, you couldn't always tell what it stuff was supposed to be in the Atari days, but usually it was better than... I mean, like, you look at Galaga and Asteroids and stuff, it's like, okay, that was a little better. Yeah. Um, so... So yeah, Legend of Zelda kind of took everything that that game did, heightened it, added combat, added like a very small amount of story, added secrets, yeah. including it's a secret to everyone. It is. Uh, yeah. So I guess Zelda was on both your and mine lists. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say another influential game. Mm-hmm. And one that I've always heard plenty about that I hear pretty much every time we would talk about gaming, but one that's kind of echoed forward through time, the original Rogue, hmm. from which the term roguelike comes from. Ah, which was, is that where that comes from? Yeah, it was originally just a randomly... Because I actually, I feel like the term got popular recently roguelike yeah and i was like the first time i heard it i think somebody was talking about crypto the necro dancer and i was like what the hell's a roguelike and i had to look it up and it's like oh the world and dungeons are automatically generated randomly generated and when you die you die permanently uh-huh so it so you lose everything but the way reason you keep going is because you don't know what you're gonna run into next time right but so, so it's like the first one of those that I really played was Diablo 2. Yeah, Diablo 2 hardcore mode was definitely a, would be call, yeah. could be called a roguelike. Yeah. And I think even just regular Diablo 2 is like roguelike adjacent. I never and really I, got into hardcore mode. I think mode. Rogue was also a big influence on that game on Diablo and Diablo 2. Probably, yeah. So uh but the original thing about Rogue was that you just started with hit points, a strength score of 17, and a mace, and you descended into a dungeon, and you fought the letters of the alphabet, which represented different monsters, and you were on a quest to retrieve the Amulet of Yendor. Hmm. And there's a whole bunch of games that people get really anal about, like, uh, no, these are the roguelikes because they're on a grid based movement and they're single player and you walk along and then you use uh, keyboard keys to interact, interact with things and they're like well roguelike's taken on a different meaning now yeah now it can mean things like the binding of Isaac or enter the gungeon uh huh or slay the spire yeah so yeah that's kind of cool anything that spawns its own genre or really revolutionizes and modernizes its own genre is a thing, uh, which is something I'm going to tell about a little game called Marathon, which uh, 
I think was one of the most influential games in the shooter franchise or uh, genre, uh, which is kind of weird to say because you know if you think of what were the first few like big name shooters, you're gonna think Doom and Wolfenstein pretty much, right? But I feel like Marathon took it into the next uh, level up because Marathon was the first shooter where you could control your camera up and down, which added another layer of depth to, you know, 3D combat. Because in, like, Doom, your bullets would automatically track up or down if there were enemies there, but it you still... It didn't always feel like a real... It, it felt a little clunky in areas, I think. Uh, which I didn't play it at the time, so it's that's kind of hard to say. But... Um, Marathon also was uh, more or less a prequel to Halo. Uh, it was developed by Bungie, originally exclusive for Macintosh, uh, of all things. Uh, Back when that was something you could do, viably. Yeah. Weird, huh? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and it did a lot more than that, too, because it I feel like it presented the story in a much deeper fashion than Doom, or Wolfenstein, or... I'm trying to think of what other shooters there really were back in that kind of time period, and there's not really a lot. No, because a lot of the original shooters were called, you know, Doom clones. Yeah. And then, like, shooters as a genre, I feel like, became established with the release of Halo. And then it was like, okay, this can just be its own thing. Or maybe even to a, to a different extent, uh... 007 Goldeneye on N64. Multiplayer shooter. Yeah, so that's that and Halo, I think, are what are normally probably thought of as maybe the two most influential. But I I think Marathon really did a lot before Halo could release that led to the success of Halo behind the scenes. Because it introduced things like this kind of deep storytelling, a lot of cool exploration within the thing. Uh, the story in all three of the marathon games was just amazing. Uh, and a lot of the elements from those original stories were carried over into the Halo universe. Huh. So, like, uh, Cortana is a smart AI that went rampant. Uh, that's actually based on the original concept was in marathon infinity where an ai named durandal went rampant uh and started like trying to take over the ship and doing different things and later on it turns out that actually his plan was to uh live forever by taking over the ship and things which is weird for a smart AI. Basically, the difference in the Halo universe for a smart AI versus a dumb AI is, like, a dumb AI is still smart, but it has a finite amount of memory space. A smart AI has an infinite amount of memory space, but eventually just can't process all of the memory and goes rampant, which is what happened to Cortana. Uh, but I feel like that story was much better told with Durandal than it was with Cortana. And also the thing about infinite memory space in AI is that I was about to go into a huge computer science mm -hmm. rant, and I stopped myself. 
Because <laughs> I thought, no one wants to hear about this. It's just a fucking game. Right? <laughs> I, I think it was theoretically infinite. Because, you know, there was maybe probably a hard cap somewhere, but it was so high that, like, they couldn't figure out how high it was or something, is how it was described in one of the Halo books, I think. Anyways. And also, I'm like, you still have the same amount of CPU processing. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna do. Yeah. Um, so what's another big influencer? Uh, I would say the use map settings map known as Defense of the Ancients. Huh. From Worldcraft, uh, Warcraft 3. Neat. Uh, which went on to spawn a few... Uh, just a few games. You may have heard of them. They would be known as League of Legends. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dota 2. Not, yeah. not No relation to Defense of the Ancients, which is a totally separate thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I felt like it was... I, I kind of got into these kind of things a little bit before League of Legends came out in Warcraft 3, because uh, some of my buddies were into this whole thing where it was almost like... It, like, it, it it was Warcraft 3, but you're basically building all your shit as a tower defense kind of thing. Um, and then later they kind of started doing those kind of things with, uh, like, you're just the hero and shit. And then I feel like that really spawned into League of Legends, too. So that's a, that's a good pick there. Yeah. Because I kind of watched all of that kind of develop, and I was kind of in the middle of it, not caring. Because I'm like, this is just not my kind of game. Can we play Dungeons and Dragons online? <laughs> DDO had looking for ham. Yes. Because Best the emote H- ever. The H key is next to the G key. <laughs> yeah. LFH. Looking for ham. Yep. Uh. Yeah. Also, I feel like it also kind of spawned the craze of uh, one game one multiplayer game coming along and then spawning a huge amount of clones to quickly die off Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like to some extent that also happened with uh, Half-Life where like Counter-Strike came out and then like I feel like that sort of multiplayer shooters yeah and most of them were not as successful as Counter-Strike. Even the ones that Valve was like, hey, let's do that same concept again and make Left 4 Dead. And Left 4 Dead was like... It was... I feel like it was pretty good and pretty well-received, but it, I feel like it was a little more niche of a game. I still really like Left 4 Dead. Yeah. I think I still prefer it to Counter-Strike because Counter-Strike doesn't have debugging a-holes. Hmm. I'm barely able to speak English at this point. It's a wonder I can dress myself. It is. Luckily, you have Velcro shoes. Yes. <laughs> thank, thank you for telling the internet about my grandpa shoes. No problem. You old fart. <laughs> <laughs> Even if I'm older than you. That's not the point. Um, so, influential games. I'm going to say the most influential um, <coughs> uh, open world game of all time. I would believe to be Morrowind. Because, like, some of the stuff that it did was obviously done in Elder Scrolls 1 and 2. 
but uh, I feel like Morrowind kind of condensed the good parts of those games and made something that was a lot more playable. Instead of having everything be procedurally generated so that you'd get a random disease from a rat in a dungeon and not know the nearest place to get cured, and when you fast-traveled to the place to get cured, you died instantly upon arrival, yeah. uh, it had handcrafted shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, I feel like the fast-travel system was like way better than basically any uh, game otherwise... or open-world game otherwise in a weird way because bus it, stations yeah because it it was not as good but it made it feel like more meaningful and more part of the world to take a silt strider or a boat or get teleported by a mages guild it's like these kind of things are like bringing you into the world instead of just like skyrim where you're like oh i have to go back to a town i was at that's like half the world away I've already seen all of the things between here and there, so there's no reason to walk back. Push so, the fast travel button. I'm here at my quest destination. So here, Mr. Guy, wind, here's the MacGuffin. actually a reason to walk back over terrain and yeah. build up tension and shit. Yeah, and you can take a different way back every time, which I feel like is a mechanic that everybody praised unanimously in Breath of the Wild, and I'm like, Morrowind did it first! Admittedly, I think Breath of the Wild does it better because of the climbing mechanics and shit, but Morrowind did it first. And it's a good idea. It's still a good idea, even yeah, even if it's an old idea. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I feel like every uh, open-world RPG or just any open-world game after Morrowind has felt like it's trying to do what Morrowind did. Right? Every and I feel like people get caught up on like thinking that it's trying to do what Skyrim did because Skyrim was way more popular than Morrowind, but I feel like there is not a single thing in Skyrim other than combat that Morrowind did not do better. I would really like to see a version... I, I would really like to see a game like Morrowind that just had Skyrim's combat engine. Yeah. There's a fan project going on. Yeah, um, which um, I think is pretty cool. Skywind. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I'd like to... I should check in with that again sometime. Yeah. Because that would just be wonderful. They got the go-ahead from Bethesda and everything, just so long as they modeled all the assets themselves. Yeah, they're like, okay, don't steal our assets and shit, and go nuts. We're not going to stop you. So I'm like, that. that's actually pretty cool of Bethesda, too. Yeah. Hopefully something eventually will come out of that and it'll be awesome and maybe Bethesda will buy it and, like, publish it. And then those guys will make a buttload of money and Bethesda will make a buttload of money by, you know, making Morrowind again. I wonder if Elder Scrolls Six is ever coming out. I mean, if Bethesda ever gets their shit in order. Right. And by their sh getting their shit in order, I mean not... Uh, Quit fucking around with Fallout 76 and a mobile game. Yeah, and you know, doing I guess two mobile games advertising and dishonest business. Yeah, just 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 quit quit that bullshit. Yeah, just just give us good games, and then we'll buy good games. Doesn't earn goodwill. Like, where's Fallout Five? Uh, I I don't know. I'm just handed back to Obsidian. Mm -hmm. Obsidian made New Vegas. 
Yeah. Vegas was better than Fallout 3. Yes. There it is. We said it. Speaking of influential games, probably, uh, I would say the original Wasteland, but I know so little about the original Wasteland that I'm going to go out on a limb and say Fallout instead. Cool. I never played the original Fallout. I did play 3 and New Vegas, and I have 4 that I've been meaning to get around to. I feel like I really would have got into it if I had got it, like, at the time that it was big. So, from what I hear about Fallout 4 is that it's a lot like Skyrim. Mm-hmm. Which, like, I don't know, sounds like it'd be fun. Mm-hmm. At right, least. like, I feel like most people don't think it's as good as Fallout 3, and I don't think Fallout 3 is as good as New Vegas, so I'm, like, a little not as hyped about it. But I, f- I like the Fallout concept and world's enough that I'm like, I really want to play it, but I've got too much other shit that I'm doing. But the original Fallout was going from town to town searching for water chip. Huh. And having a lot of different ways to resolve conflicts that you went into. Mm. And that kind of set the pace for a lot of um, later CRPGs, not just the Fallout games, but also... Mm -hmm. The Bioware games, kind of the yeah. big talkie-talkie yeah. games. I feel like there was some amount of that also from Morrowind, where, like, you'd have different quests that you could... You could find different places for different reasons. Sometimes you just wander into a dungeon for fun, because you like, hey, look, there's a dungeon over there. I'm going to go raid it for loot. And then you'd go to a quest giver, and he'd be like, hey, that's the thing I was going to send you on a quest for. And, you know, so you could do things out of order a lot, and uh, there was different quests that you could do that sometimes would, like, if you took one and then did the other, then one of the other guys would be pissed that you did it for the wrong guild or some shit. Uh, You could fall out of favor with other factions. Yeah. Yeah. And if you were, like, part of one faction, then you could do all their quests, but you couldn't join another faction. Well, that was also one of those games where you could defi- you could resolve all of your problems by talking at them. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, shooting them. And while I like shooting things, I appreciate the game giving you, you know, fucking options. Yeah, and I feel like that's now a little bit one of those things that's sort of become standard in large open-world RPGs, too. Giving you lots of options on how you go about resolving a problem. Yeah. You don't always yeah. have to Nord Sword it, but when it comes down to it, Nord Sword is a good solution. It's like, give me the option to talk through things, or to stealth through things, or to, you know, like, plant something on somebody just a little more. Be- you should pour yourself some wine, too. I'll have the rest of the can or something. That'll work. Eyes wide shut. If you do forgot already what it was, it's pretty great. It is a pretty great beer. Uh, yeah, it should be should be a standard thing to be able in an open world game that's about approaching exploration and approaching things in a different way to have a bunch of different ways of resolving your problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how about? Big one. 
Ocarina of Time. Ocarina of Time. I feel like Ocarina of Time was influential for not not necessarily to a lot of games, but to a lot of people growing up with it. I feel like it was influential to a lot of games because it kind of standardized how 3D adventure games worked. You've got a lock-on system, uh, often swappable items or swappable abilities, uh, context-sensitive button pressing was introduced in Ocarina of Time for the first time. So, like, your A button... That's true. That, you know, that's the thing that is taken for granted now. It's like, that's such an obvious thing now. In literally every game, your A button changes from talk to push block to open door to whatever. But... Ocarina of Time was the first game to do that. Someone had to think of it. Yeah. Ocarina of Time built that foundation. Mm-hmm. To me, the game feels so foundational, I don't even... It's hard to even think about it sometimes. Yeah. And also, I feel like it kind of introduced the 3D hub world uh, in a way that... Like, technically, you could argue that Mario 64 did it first, but... Ocarina of Time made it feel like part of an interconnected world, right? Because the hub in Ocarina of Time, obviously, is Hyrule Field that branches off into different paths into the villages, towns, wherever you're going. Uh, in Mario 64, your hub world was a castle with paintings that teleported you to a different world. You know, there was that kind of weird disconnect there. Yeah. So Ocarina of Time was the first game that I feel you really felt like you were in a real virtual world yeah it actually opened up into that big world and it felt like you could go in a lot of places but i think as we talked in the episode about linearity uh Mm -hmm. it was you were more on a directed path than you would have originally realized that's true but with good hub designs you don't notice it as much like ocarina of time has a great hub design because you get out of kokiri forest you can go to the ranch you can go to hyrule castle you can go to zora's river you can go to kakariko Kakariko, gerudo village you lake hylia all of those places are open to you right away you can't do stuff at most of them but you can go to all of them and it's just kind of figuring out okay you know eventually when i come back I'll know what to do because I'll have a new item. I'll, you know, the story will be kind of poking me in one direction or another. Uh, but you can do tons of stuff out of order too because of this design. Because like, if you wanted to, you could go right out of Kokiri Forest, go to Lake Hylia, get the message for Princess Rudo in the bottle. Now you've got a bottle too. That's kind of cool. Uh, you could go fishing for a while. Uh, then, you know, once you've got the Master Sword, you can do most of the dungeons in any order. The only real one that matters is you have to do the Water Temple before you can trigger the cutscene to get into the Shadow Temple. So you could do... You can do the Fire Temple. You could do Forest Temple. You could do the first part of the Forest Temple, get the bow, go to the Water Temple, complete the Water Temple, go into the Well then go to the Shadow Temple and the Spirit Temple and then finally wrap around and complete the Forest Temple and the Fire Temple. Yeah. That would be an extremely ass-backwards way of doing things. Uh, The only one small issue with that is you would have to figure out some way to either uh, remember where all the invisible shit is because you can't get the Lens of Truth 
or glitch your way into getting the lens of truth because you can't go back in time until you have completed the forest temple. Right. So you also technically can't get past the spirit temple until you've beat the forest temple because then you can go back in time because you have to go back in time to get into the spirit temple. But you can do the shadow temple fairly early on if you get yeah if you do either if you get lucky or silly cheese yes yeah. you can do this so now most of most people do them in a fairly set order but i feel like i've talked to so many people that switch the spirit temple or shadow temple as the last temple that it doesn't matter and i've met a handful of people that just thought it was correct to do the fire temple first where the story literally pretty much points you directly at the forest temple. They tell you, go to the forest temple. But you can totally enter and beat the fire temple 100% clear without ever going in the forest temple. Which is very strange. Yeah. Well, technically not 100 Well, actually, yeah. Because technically, the only weird thing that you need from outside of the fire temple to get the last treasure chest in it is the Scarecrow song. But if you've got the Scarecrow's song, you can enter the Fire Temple as soon as you are an adult and get everything. You might need the long shot, too, actually, for that Scarecrow. I'm not sure. Anyway. I don't remember. Yeah. Because he's, he's in a weird position. But yeah. So is that the most influential game of all time? Ocarina of Time? Maybe. Probably not, but uh, I can't think of any more tonight. So. I've got one more that I think is actually more influential than Ocarina of Time that I'm going to say is the reason we have story-based games at all. Ninja Gaiden. Oh, yeah, the first, the NES game that had cutscenes. Yes. Having fully animated cutscenes that really tell the story, I think, is the thing that kept video games on a map. Uh, it's it's one of them. I feel like there's a couple of bullet points that kept bullet that kept video games on the map, but I think this is maybe one of the most important ones cuz without stories or with just basic ass stories like NES and Super NES games pretty much did back in the day, I feel like video games would have gone nowhere. It's like they would have been treated as games and they'd be like fun they might still be around but they'd be like board games that people take out you know twice a year like hey it's game night let's play monopoly and hey it's game night let's play the legend of zelda the free park get the money uh from free parking rule is that a rule that's the house rule Mm. it's not like an actual rule in monopoly it makes the games take longer huh which is why they get so bitter and drawn out (laughs) I feel like Monopoly already is kind of a long-ass game. Yeah. That's why I like, actually, I've got the uh, Mario Kart Monopoly. It's much more streamlined. Everything is a lot simpler. And it's more hilarious because you're tossing shells and hitting POW blocks. It's fucking awesome, actually. kind of like it. I so, do yeah. like that game better. I remember that. Yeah. All right, so I think that's it for influential video games. We will move on to our table topic, which is all about the most influential tabletop RPGs of all time, which we don't have to have an argument about because it's fucking Dungeons & Dragons. 
Yeah, I mean... Like, there's nothing else that even competes. But what we are going to talk about is which version of Dungeons & Dragons is the most influential. Because I think a case could be made for every version except, except for fourth. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and maybe 3.5, because I feel like if you're arguing for 3.5, you're basically arguing for 3, except 3.5 was like, here's a couple of hot fixes. I think 3.5 has a pretty strong argument behind it for being one of the, uh, the edition where people really started to talk about it online and just dissect everything about it. True, but I feel like if that's the argument particularly that you're going to use for that game, I think that argument would go better to 5th edition. Yes. 3.5 made it a thing that people talked about online. 5th edition made it mainstream. That's where we get our critical roles from, our adventure zones, our, uh, and a bunch of other stuff I've never even paid attention yeah. to. Because Or like A Drink to the Past, that podcast about tabletop RPGs yeah. and video games. It's yeah. now and available beer. on iTunes. And beer, yeah. They're the only ones that talk about craft beer. Yeah, yeah what the hell? Come on, guys. Other podcasts. Yeah, you jerks. Can't do all three things. That's the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways... So, um, yeah, so let's kind of go through them, because uh, I think it would be interesting just to kind of go through, like, what is influential about each of these different versions, too. So, uh, what about first edition? Do you think made it influential enough to make a splash and last as long as it has? Because it's been 40 years or something that it's been around. Let's see, first edition was kind of the big push by Gary Gygax when he kind of took over and took out a lot of uh, Arneson's uh, design intent, mm -hmm. but it also had probably some of the most detailed, maybe not good, but like detailed reasoning and uh, and it game explanations and advice behind it, uh, such as in the Dungeon Master's Guide, where it had pretty much every random detail you want to think of when running a game, like hmm. how much does an assassin cost and what chance of success do they have, or how likely am I to catch a disease in this weird tropical village, <laughs> or uh, what kind of gems make for certain kinds of magic... Uh, magical components and making magic items. Hmm. Uh, so, I think for a lot of people, it was because it was called first edition, it was their introduction to the hobby, and uh, that's where people started with was with that version of the game. Mm -hmm. But, I also think you could make a fairly strong argument for uh, the BX version of D&D, which came out a little later, hmm. in 19... I want to say 1980. Okay. And that was... Uh, both little booklets combined, I think it was 128 pages, and it was the cleanest version of the game for quite a long time. Hmm. Stripped down, basic, but playable basic. Right. Literally basic and expert Dungeons and Dragons. <clears throat> okay. 
That's kind of cool. Um, yeah, I didn't play very much first edition. Um, I've played more AD&D, but not a whole ton. Um, AD&D, I think, uh, really is... I think its influence comes from the fact that it changed the core D&D mechanics a little to make it a more balanced game where you could really tell a story in. Because in original D&D, I feel like we've had this kind of conversation before where it's like a lot of mechanics not as big on the roleplay because you have to focus so heavily on the mechanics and otherwise you die. And AD&D, I feel like, was the first kind of push in the direction towards storytelling, uh, which later I feel like was really emphasized in 3rd edition, but I feel like second in, or, uh, AD&D really pushed it into that direction first. And I actually kind of feel the opposite. I feel like the lack of mechanics meant... I, I feel like the older games tended particularly OD&D with it being worded just vague as hell mm. to, to the point where at each group was pay, playing a different game because you mm. had to. You had to interpret the booklets. Right. And with the basic game, the BX and Beckme, and I guess Holmes was a game too. Mm. <laughs> uh because the mechanics were pretty lightweight and you could separate them out easily, you could house rule pretty much however you wanted, and because it was so easy to make a character, it was easier to focus on the fiction. Okay. Even with... And particularly in basic, you had things like the monster reaction role, where it was, you run into a monster, but there's only a 1 in 36 chance they're going to want to kill you on sight usually you have a chance to at least talk with them first or be like, I'm going to give you this money if you fuck off. Here's $100 to fuck off. Uh -huh. uh, That's fair. I feel like mechanically it was more balanced, though, in AD&D because it's like, I feel like you weren't just screwed in as many situations, and that's kind of what allows me to get into... It, it kind of lets me get my head out of the mechanics a little bit. Yeah, I think there's a balance to be struck behind between uh, a game where character building takes a long time and you optimize your character to shit and a game where your character is so fragile that you need to make them possible <coughs> to roll up and make in five minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I think somewhere in between AD&D's kind of toughening you up and BX's just simplicity is kind of a sweet spot. Yeah. So then, we kind of get into the 3rd edition 3.5. Um, I think, like we were kind of saying, that kind of pushed it a lot further into being more popular. I'm not sure exactly what it is that gave it all the traction that it did, but that's where I got into D&D &D was in 3rd Edition. I think 3rd Edition and 3.5 were really... They weren't the start of the character-building minigame, <laughs> uh, but they were the ones that leaned into it more heavily. Yeah. With things like feats and individual skills. Yeah, I feel like there was a lot... Even just in the base character at level 1, I feel like it felt more personalized in 3.0. 
in 3.5 than it did in anything before that. And also to an extent, I think its biggest influential factor is that now anything that's too far separated from 303.5 doesn't feel like D&D, which is why 4th isn't on the discussion, because 4th changed a lot of things and kind of tried to be its own thing, and 5th is kind of back to that root. And, like, there's even Pathfinder now, which is basically a modified version of 303.5. Yeah. So I feel like their influence is that they became the standard. And everything is now based on that standard and compared to that standard. Unfairly, unjustly, perhaps, but that's the standard now and that's where it's compared. And when you say AD&D, I think of 1st Edition and 2nd Edition as very different games, too. Mm -hmm. I think 1st Edition was probably the more influential, but 2nd Edition is where Baldur's Gate came from. And a lot of CRPGs were based on that, which would have been a lot of people's yeah. introduction to D&D. So, mm-hmm. hard, hard to say, I guess. Yeah, um, but I feel like both of them kind of fall short to the 3.0 kind of standardizing how Dungeons & Dragons works. And to an extent, standardizing how tabletop RPG works. Because, like, there's very few tabletop RPGs that I've ever seen post Dungeons and Dragons 3.0 that don't feel like they're borrowing something from it. And I feel like 3.0 and 3.5 had... It, it's easy to forget that they had real positive contributions, as particularly if you hang out in some of the uh, internet discussions like I do. Uh-huh. I'm basically harping on myself at this point. Uh <laughs> But they had things like standardizing conditions. So when you said, this guy is stunned, everyone knew what that meant. Yeah. And that came at a cost, which was that everyone, there was a rulebook definition for stunned. But in some ways, that that was both a positive and a negative thing. Yeah, I feel like the benefit outweighs the uh, detriment. And... I tend to think there are certain things where you should specify them in the rules, but you should you shouldn't have to know the entire rule book to be like, what's the bleeding condition? What's the frozen condition? Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of those things should be you know particularistic. Yeah. You should be able to look at like the ability and figure out what that means, right? As opposed to having to look it up in the rule book, but if it's but having standardization like that can be a positive if the effect is common enough and you want to control what it means. Yeah. I feel like for all the effects that it did kind of standardize, that was true because it's like, for stun particularly, was a fairly common effect. You know, it's like there's a lot of different spells and mechanics that give you stun effects. Uh, you know, stunning fist for your monk too and... Uh, I think there was uh, some kind of rogue build in... uh, I feel like it was, like, complete rogue or complete scoundrel or something that introduced a thing where, like, you could stun people with your sneak attack or some shit. Huh. I don't remember which book it was now. I feel like it was uh, one of those supplement books, though. It wasn't a core book, but I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, that's probably... And I feel like the... In general, those kind of keyword things are, like, 
standardized enough. It, I, I don't feel like it's as bad as like Magic the Gathering with keyword things where it's like they introduce a keyword and it's like, oh, that's a cool ability and they keep it around for three sets and dump it. Yeah, and if you look at Pathfinder, they definitely, I think they definitely got to that point. But that's what you get when you standardize everything and then you make it part of a shared... You, you make it part of a shared continuum like that. <laughs> uh, it gets in, You get into rules bloat where you have to know the definitions of this many more things. <laughs> uh, I also think partially second edition, but leading into third edition, had a much heavier emphasis on the mechanics of combat and the action economy. <laughs> and having an action economy, I would say, is a good thing. But they also did it at the expense of the procedure for exploring, say, a dungeon or wilderness. Mm-hmm. It was something that they just forgot to copy forward from the fir- from AD and D first edition. Right. Um. So how about fourth? Uh, <laughs> yeah, nobody cares. That's pretty funny. Uh, but we're well, all debating about. We're, well, I'm mostly talking about 3rd and 3.5 here, but I think I would... If I had to put money on it, I would say 5th edition mm-hmm. is the most influential. Yeah, because um, I feel like a lot of its core mechanics, again, like I said, have that route back to 3rd edition 3.5, mm-hmm. but it does them a little different. And somehow it just got the traction with the right people at the right time, and it's what made tabletop RPGs a mainstream thing. Yeah. Like, they were always there. Like, I bet, like, since the days of 3035, people have probably just generally known Dungeons & Dragons is a thing and what it is, more or less, even if they've never played it. But now I feel like it's almost more often that you meet somebody who has played Dungeons and Dragons than not. Which is probably something to do with the types of people that I meet. But at the same time, it's like it used to be like I sell people like play Dungeons and Dragons, they're like, Oh, I heard of that. Uh what's that? You know. They're like I guess in the eighties it was like, oh that's some weird nerd thing. We're gonna beat you up, nerd. Right, yeah. And then, but now it's just, oh yeah, I heard of that. Or, oh, you are you running a game? Can I join that game? Which is yeah. kind of cool. Yeah, because I'm like, I get people talking to me about it fairly regularly. I've had people like just be like, hey, do you run a game? Uh, is it regular? Can I join? And I'll invite people to join our games sometimes and, you know, get people on board like that. Like, that's actually basically how Peyton and I started hanging out other than work. Because it's like, we kind of like talking about video games at work. But then he was like, you play d and I want to get into it. And we're like, okay. So, yeah. So, and having that big up... Making RPGs go mainstream, or at least making D&D go mainstream, is something I don't think, even during the 80s, uh, any version of D&D was able to do. Yeah. Because, so. like, as mainstream as it might have been during the 80s, I feel like it's that times 10 now. And, yeah. like, that was... As mainstream as it was, I don't think was necessarily a good thing. 
Because I feel like there was a lot of controversy surrounding it in the 80s as well. They were like, oh, there's demons in here. Yeah. Uh, that means you're worshipping Satan, which is yeah. fucking nonsense. And then there was, you know, very rare cases of, like, people developing, like, D&D cultist stuff and, you know, getting weird into it. Like, your character died, now we have to murder you. I cast a mind bondage spell on my father. Got him to buy me more D&D things. <laughs> Jack Chick is dead. Huh. He died a while back. Poor guy. I mean... That was a silly thing to do. I mean, he was like 90 or something. Hmm. Also, he was a hateful old bastard. An old bastard. So basically, fuck Jack Chick, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. But he's dead, and you're not supposed to speak ill of the dead, so... I hope he's healthy and dead. Yeah. Because healthy is the opposite of ill. I have to drink. There's like barely any beer left in this can. I'm like, I kind of want to have another beer, but I don't really want to have another beer. Do you have... We don't have that much podcast left, I think. No, I, I think we've covered a lot. Do you have any disagreements about... No, I think if there's an argument to be made that's really, if anything's above fifth, I think it's three and 3.5... But I think five takes the cake anyway. Yeah. So that's pretty much that. So that's our opinion. Fifth edition is the most influential version of Dungeons and Dragons ever. So the other part of this table topic that I forgot to mention is: um, Do you think another tabletop series could ever surpass Dungeons and Dragons for influence? Uh, because D and D helped. It, with 5th edition has finally broken into the mainstream uh, possibly hmm. I would have said no way beforehand because D&D was what everybody thought of uh-huh. for tabletops but because it was like a weird not mainstream thing it was always going to be on top uh-huh. and now it's you got groups like Critical Role playing games like Apocalypse World or Monster Hearts which mm-hmm. are kind of more niche games. Right. Um, they're, they're not games to my taste, but I think because those groups exist and they can showcase things like this and tabletop RPGs are kind of getting known to be their own medium, Yeah. Uh, the door is opened just a tiny crack. I think we're a long way from a time when D&D yeah. was not the king, mm-hmm. but... But yeah, I think there's definitely possibly room for it. Um, I think down the road people could get burnt out on D and D, especially if you know sixth edition is very Garbage. similar to fifth, or if it's not very good, like fourth. What? Yeah. So I then I think something else could become more popular than it fairly easily, even in the next generation potentially, uh, next two or three generations. You know who even know and. Tabletop RPG generations are weird, too, because it's, like, some tabletop RPGs have, like, a yearly update or some shit, and Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition has been standard for, what, five or six years now? It's been, yeah, since 2014. And Call of Cthulhu's on in 7th edition, mm-hmm. which is the other game the that's, I want to say, kind of my yeah. mainstream. But I think, like video games kind of we were talking about how they've had a lot of different kinds of influential games 
over the history of video games. I think now that tabletops are mainstream, what you're saying I think is really even expounded upon by the fact that we could see tabletops potentially that are doing things that tabletops have never been known to do before. And what exactly that means is hard to tell because you can't say, oh, there's going to make a 3D tabletop. That, uh, what? But, yeah. you know, somehow I think they're going to evolve and develop similarly to video games and we're going to eventually see games that have stuff like this. Like, uh, uh, maybe a good example is actually the mission decks that we were talking about the other week uh, with um, the guy from NorCal Mythos. Uh, they're kind of on the border between... Uh a board game and a tabletop. Yeah, kind of a little bit, and it's completely runnable tabletop with no DM. I think that's a very unique look at it, and that's just an example of a mechanic that I don't know if this will like go up and be more influential, but if that's the kind of thing that catches on because the mainstream like I don't think our group has a problem with DMing. Like, all of us are, like, okay to be the DM. Yeah. At some point, we all have different kind of ways to DM, and sometimes we want to take a break, and then somebody else DMs, and nobody gives a shit. But I don't know what the mainstream is like. The mainstream might not like DMing as much. So maybe this kind of thing could potentially get a lot bigger than we think it will. And and maybe not. You know, who knows? And maybe it'll be a totally different unforeseen mechanic. Like I have that. heard a lot of stories of people being like, oh, I'm the forever DM. My players don't want... My players don't want... None of my players want a DM. Well, I'm if like, that's your problem, then you should go and get a mission deck now available on Kickstarter if they are successfully kickstarted. I have never had that problem. Our group, no group I've ever played in has had that problem. Yeah. It's always been like four or five people wanting to DM and they're being like, well, we want a consistent game, so only like two or three people can. And then the other people are disappointed. Right. <laughs> so, luckily, our group has kind of eventually settled into most of the time either I or you DM or Dan if he's actually here. Yeah. Or Owen if he's here. Yeah. Owen, come on the podcast and. DM yeah. some stuff or come on the thing. Anyway, he was on one of these podcasts. He was on one of these podcasts. You weren't there. Yeah. You jerk. Who would anyway. have some stuff to say? Yeah. So, Chris, have you brought a thing? I have. And if you'll remember from uh, several episodes ago, you'll have to dig through the archives. I don't remember precisely which one. Uh, I brought Wild Talents. Well, this is a setting book for that. Okay. That I've had a PDF of forever. It sounds like a Doppelbach. Uh, progenitor. Progenitor? Yeah. It's about... Uh, it's a superhero history setting starting in 1967, uh, where it's basically covers uh, everything up to the year 2000. Huh. Uh, and how supers can and would change the world. So you've got people with, like, super strengths doing, you know, stuff with super strengths, but then you have, like, super geniuses who invent things like a pipe that uh, decontaminates water in third-world countries or, like, a room-temperature superconductor. Mm -hmm. And an AIDS cure, or the Alabama Protocol in 1994. Yeah. Thanks, superheroes. 
It's a little too late to save Freddie Mercury, so that's kind of sad. Yeah, kind of. Ninety-one. Yeah. Always remember Freddie. He's cool. Yeah, so that sounds kind of neat. But the main one of the big things about this setting is that uh, the progenitor was the first superhuman, uh-huh. and from her, uh, based on the people she used her powers on, like the first ten or so people, they developed powers of their own. And those people use their power when they use their powers on other people. They developed power. Uh, the people they use those powers on continue to develop powers, and so on and so on in a chain of powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's one of the ideas behind it is basically that you can create your own villains this way. A word on killbots. Yeah, there's killbots. Killbots. In the yeah. <laughs> Everybody likes created by some asshole. That asshole. Yeah. So this looks kind of neat. Um, I like uh, Wild Talents pretty well. We've played it a handful of times. Yeah. Um, and I I like the system pretty well. So this is definitely kind of a cool looking kind of setting book for it too because it it feels like it's almost like uh, the Watchmen universe uh, fast forwarded up till two thousand. From your description of it, a kind little bit, of, but with powers and it's basically hmm. has the there's like a trope in superhero comics that's been popular recently, where it's like Superman. What if Superman, but he, like completely not crazy and evil? Oh, uh, well, then you get Brightburn, or you get the Plutonian from Irredeemable, or you get uh, the Homelander from The Boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this, it's more like superhumans. It's a pretty good show. I should finish that now that you mention it. I can do whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> uh, but in this setting, superhumans are based... They're still, you know, human beings. They're not, like, totally any way. They have complex motivations. So, it's like somebody, someone's like, I'm going to work with the U.S. to try and solve the Vietnam War. Uh they might think they're doing the right thing, but that's they're going to cause a lot of collateral damage in the meantime. So I mm-hmm. think that's pretty cool. I like the complexity behind that. Cool. All right. What would you rate this on a scale of 3 to 17? There's uh, our system of rating that we were talking about twice before and didn't yeah, get to. You so wanna- if you've... Held out this long for the podcast and wondered what the fuck our rating system was. Now you've uh, successfully paid off your weight. Our scale is a scale of 3 to 17. And Chris is also going to use that to rate this book. I would rate this book a 15. If only because I think as a setting book it focuses too much on particular events in the timeline. Uh And not enough as being a play aid. That being said, it's still something I regularly like to go back through and read. I think it has a lot of good ideas that are applicable outside of the setting itself. Cool. Uh, so yeah, 15 out of 17. Awesome. That sounds kind of useful. I Because I feel like a lot of setting books are kind of like, uh, you know, you do the setting and that's it. Yeah. 
but if it's got that kind of thing that you can use and reuse and you know kind of it's got slap a new coat of paint on it and call it something else and shoehorn it into your other campaign without anybody noticing sure yeah oh well, i mean lot some of the ideas from this were directly in nova c yeah neat oh uh one more thing it's got weaponized memes it's got a it's got like a little subsection on how to weaponize memes so, I feel uh, like we're going to play this eventually, and that's going to be Josh's entire character. Well, I'll have to be like a super genius to and do it. then he's going to get way fucking drunk and just, like, throw lolcats at people. Lolcats that turn you gay. <laughs> Is that how that works? Let's look it up in the, uh, let's look it up in the pack here. Are there any blue-haired anime boys around? I don't know if anime developed... Oh, yeah, here it is. Centrogenics. Hmm. It tells you all the rules about how to weaponize memes and change people's mind with memes. Hmm. Which is uh, the first and only set of rules I've read on that. So, yeah, pick it up if that sounds like your kind of thing. So we could just, like, throw political memes at people and actually get shit done on Facebook? Yeah. Instead of just, like... But for this guy, he's not the other guy. The hey, trick. The other guy is this guy. The trick ah. is you're basically a super genius uh -huh. to make those kinds of memes. <clears throat> nice. Never more has it been relevant to, to today's political climate. I made a meme once. What was it? It was a picture of Link in Zelda Link to the Past, and he's like getting attacked by 8 million chickens. And uh, my, I put the caption on when a new Zelda meme comes out and all of your friends tag you. Because <laughs> I feel like that happens with me. It's like every time there's like a new funny meme relating to Zelda, like 20 people on Facebook are like, Hey, Sean, here's this meme. I'm tagging you. Some of them are like posted on my wall. I'm like, when you went to post this on my wall, did you not see the three other times that it was posted on my wall? No. Do you think people pay attention? Yeah. I'm too poor to pay attention. I work for the school system. You can't even pay for attention. Nope. Just, you poor bastard. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much pretty much the deal. It's okay. I can't pay attention either. Mm -hmm. That's a condition. Huh. Is that like a status condition? I mean, it's like a mental condition. Huh. Mental condition. Mm-hmm. I like to use it with, yeah, with yeah I like to use it with my mental shampoo. Oh. Better than mental floss, I guess. Yeah. Guy I, I mean, there's not a lot of cracks to clean out in the brain. It's pretty smooth up there. Is it? Your brain is so smooth. I like to give it a once over with the with the brain brush. <laughs> I wanted to say toothbrush, but my brain doesn't have teeth. <laughs> you don't just like Take a power sander to your brain to make sure it's all shiny? No. Yeah. You use a water pick. <laughs> I guess that kind of works. Kind of hurts. Yeah. It's kind of loud, though. Although I guess a power sander would probably be a lot louder. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't take a power sander to my brain. Mm hmm Would you take a brain to your power sander? Uh. Probably. <laughs> 